0: All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we have a founder from Startup Nation, and I think that we're going to be learning a lot about his own journey, you know, building and scaling companies, doing exits, so everything in between. So I guess without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Aaron Shear. Welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So born and raised in Israel. So how was life there growing up in, in Israel?
1: Well, I, I had pretty geeky life, uh, honestly. I uh, spent most of my, my days kind of reading and studying physics as a, as a teenager. So no, not too many kind of uh,
0: uh,
1: fancy stories. I, I was uh, doing music and doing physics, and that was pretty much uh, my and, life.
0: And why physics? What got you into physics?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, Actually, it's an interesting question that maybe someone could uh, even assist me with. Back when I was like in fourth grade, I found in the library this book uh, uh, that was called, I think, uh, Dear Archimedes or something like that. It was basically um, sort of like a a journal of uh, someone uh, in the Manhattan Project you know where they developed uh, the atom bombs so it was like a it was kind of written from a kid's point of view describing uh, some of the things that they were doing there and uh, and I that opened up this whole world for me uh, and got me really excited about physics and uh, I guess since you know since fourth grade I was kind of very focused on uh, wanting to become a physicist um and uh, I've been actually searching for that book. Couldn't find it. So if someone uh, knows knows it and can uh, help me locate it, send me a note.
0: There you go. There you go. So so after after you know, like really growing up with uh, with this geeky you know mindset, as 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 you were mentioning around physics, you obviously studied physics too at university, and then after university, you do the you did the mandatory years in the army and talking about adrenaline fueled you know like with explosions and missiles i mean i'm sure that that you learn, you know a fair amount of um you know i i guess like just like being focused in in really tough environments
1: yeah and also it was exciting to for me because that was my actually my first kind of um a startup experience because I was involved in uh, starting up a new army unit involved with the um, ballistic missile defense. Uh, we we were actually the first uh, army in the world that had a functioning uh, ballistic missile defense uh, system called the Arrow, and and me and a, and a small group of of soldiers and a few officers were in charge of basically. Uh, making it operational, building up the whole kind of what's called the um, SOP, uh, the whole standards of how to work with it, and uh, and that was pretty pretty fun. And also, yes, uh, get, getting involved in uh, all kind of uh, um, uh, missile um, testing, which is
0: uh, which is quite exciting. And I'm sure that when you are dealing there with explosives and and things like that, you know I'm sure that you were able to understand how to be more comfortable with unpleasant moments with perhaps uncertainty, which at the end of the day is the life of an entrepreneur so anything that perhaps you took away or that shaped up your personality or your way at maybe like viewing even business that maybe you got from your experience in the army,
1: yeah, you know uh you learn how um uh, details are super critical like i remember one example where um there was this massive uh, test that people had prepared for you know for like a year or 18 months for um and it's like all the the top brass of the you know the army, the government, etc., kind of looking at this with anticipation, and and the missile goes up in the air and start doing uh, hoops. Really, not uh, what you wanted, uh, and um, and uh, when they kind of researched the reason why, it ended up that the reason was um, that the 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 person that was. Um, Soldering
0: two uh,
1: wires in some circuit there, as part of like millions of circuits within this kind of massive rocket, uh, connected the wrong wires. Right, this little thing kind of blew off. Like I don't know how much uh, of an investment. Um, so, so you you kind of get the the. And understanding of, you know, if you're trying to do something that is really important or really big, it's a sequence of very detailed um, uh, jobs, very detailed kind of activities and functions and tasks, and, and it's the the small things that you do every day that uh, that uh, matter, and uh, and not just having the big vision.
0: And talking about doing something very big. So after the Army, when you left the Army, like three years after, you did your master's, again, in physics. But then after this, you go at it as an entrepreneur. And you start, you know, like building View Systems. This was your first startup. So tell yeah. us about, you know, how this came about, you know, and how you went about it.
1: So this was like uh, around 2001. And um, and uh, I was then uh, fascinated by uh, this emerging field of machine learning. And uh, in particular, I was really excited about a, a certain field called uh, uh, genetic algorithms. Uh, and um, and what, I, what we managed to demonstrate, me and a few of my friends, is uh, that you can automatically create uh, algorithms that are optimized for different people uh, or different um, tasks. Uh, So think about it like, um, you know, my vision was uh, I wanted to go and build a search engine and compete with Google back in the day with the idea that each one of us should get Personalized search results stemming from personalized uh, uh, algorithm, right? So for each each one of us should have a different kind of logic running based on how how we know uh, how the search engine knows us. So for example, if uh, if you and I search, uh, you know, quantum mechanics, uh, I might get uh, more expert uh, results or papers on the subject while you might get the wikipedia f- page for it right okay. so so uh, uh, that was our original idea um, and we ended up not going there because uh, because there wasn't a lot of excitement uh, back in 2001 for consumer uh, search engine uh, technology so it kind of pivoted to to uh, enterprise, and um, it actually went for a few years. I, I kind of was less excited at the time from the enterprise direction. So uh, after after a few years, I moved back to the academic world and started pursuing uh, a PhD in um, in uh, physics and and uh, engineering uh, focused on complex systems. Uh,
0: which was really what excited me at the time and and here so obviously cognitive systems didn't really have the the exit that you had that you had hope for no it was not the outcome that you had anticipated so no what? no
1: it it kind of went for for i think something like 7 years and it 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 got a uh, few people good salary for 7 years so so that was the uh, um you know um from their perspective i think a, a decent outcome from my perspective i learned a lot uh during that time uh from lots of mistakes uh that uh, that i've done that uh, that we've done uh, uh, as a company um and hopefully i managed to to use that uh, experience uh to get better later in my career
0: so what was that one lesson that you took away with you that you knew for sure that if you were to start another business you would absolutely really implement that lesson well the the one that
1: i think most important clearest is is uh, uh, the size of the founding team and um, i came out of it with strong conviction that uh, the optimal size of a founding team is two people, and three people is um, is can also be done well. Uh, I don't think that one person is is good, uh, except for really special people, uh, because you don't have this kind of sounding board and people to keep you honest. And I think that anything beyond three is. Uh, extremely challenging and i think uh, uh, when i when i was kind of um, uh, doing view uh, i was pretty lax at uh, at um, um adding people into the founding team where we were kind of in the ideation phase because i was kind of sure why not and um it turned out that it creates um, a less than productive uh, kind of um, uh, dynamics so that was one clear uh lesson um another another lesson really is about the dynamics of markets and uh, vision right like how how quickly are you kind of uh, giving up on your vision and uh, at the same time the, I think the one of the things that people do not appreciate uh, is that the places where uh, the markets are down is actually the play, best place to, to start companies uh, in many respects. So, you know, in 2001, 2002, starting a, a, a long-term consumer proposition was actually not, necessarily a bad idea and just like uh, we saw the same pattern in 2009 2010 where a lot of the companies that um, become juggernauts in that space kind of were formed.
0: so then so then for for what was the reason why you know obviously here you you got a taste of entrepreneurship and you really got you know obviously the 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 good lessons, the bad lessons, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, everything that really goes into it. Why did you go into academia versus maybe like launching something else? Uh,
1: first of all, because I still had that academic bug. And secondly, because I found um, an idea that blended well my academic aspirations and my kind of startup aspirations. Um and basically, my my academic research was uh, like an academic startup. I, I kind of raised money from the European Union for a new lab, and I built a crowdsourced project to map the entire internet, um, uh, every router and every ISP in the planet. And we've di- we've done that by building software and asking thousands and thousands of Basically, volunteers to install it. It was called Dimes, and um, and it allowed us to create the largest data set of its time in how every router on the internet uh, behaves and looks and where it is, and every ISP, and really how the internet evolves over time as a network. and And that was exciting to me because, on the one hand, it allowed me to research this this new creation and learn about kind of complex systems and complex networks and at the same time it was truly an academic startup like i had engineers working in my lab i i uh, i actually had to market and and distribute our our software uh, you know in the forms of slash dot and all kinds of places like that Uh, we created all kind of gamification mechanisms I don't know if you remember things like SETI at home, but that was the, the era of a, a distributed computing emerging as a, as a, as a thing. And, and we were kind of pioneers in that. And
0: that was quite exciting. Yeah, because here what you were doing essentially was doing work on complex systems, complex networks, and even epidemics on complex networks. I mean, what do you mean with epidemics on complex networks? I mean, this is a little bit technical for me and I'm sure that technical for other people listening. Yeah,
1: so one of the uh, interesting quest- questions that we asked ourselves at the time was how do viruses propagate on, co- on complex networks, on real networks? Um, and uh, how can you develop mechanisms to block them? And uh, I, I built some of these models. Uh, actually, published back 15 years ago in in Nature, in Nature Physics, I, I published um, uh, some some work on on exactly that, on the dynamics of epidemics, on uh, complex networks. And um, what was interesting is that it was very different from what people thought about. Uh, at the time, what, uh, you know, typical epidemiologists uh, think about, if you know the SIR model, all this kind of stuff, it turns out that that's not how the real dynamics works. And, and we can see it uh, actually these days very vividly. Um, because when when we do this kind of mathematical models, we put, okay, I have a certain population and a certain percentage of them, get infected, and we all, you know, became a, a couch epidemiologist in the last year. Uh, so we all know about r naught and all of these kind of factors. And right. it turns out that that's not how it works because uh, uh, there is a big variance between different nodes in this network, right? Like uh, I might be uh, sitting in my house all day and not uh, meeting anyone physically and, and thus not infecting anyone versus someone that is um, uh, selling in a grocery store and he's seeing dozens of people every day. So his probability of infecting someone is much, much higher than mine. Uh, and because of that, he has a chance to be what's called a super spreader, right? Someone that uh, really pushes the the disease forward, uh, the infection forward. And this whole dynamics that is very uh, uh, different from the type of bell curves that we all know and imagine, you know, someone is a bit higher, someone is a, a bit uh, uh, taller, uh, a bit less taller, but but it's pretty much the same. In the case of networks, it's really not the same. It's a, It's much more like, Uh, the distribution of wealth in the world, right? You know, I don't have as much money as Bill Gates, not in a long shot, right? We have several orders of magnitude difference between us. And the same thing happens with epidemics. Uh, And because of that, you have to change the way you deal with them. You really have to focus on this kind of super spreading uh, dynamics and mechanism. And really 90% of the population have... A very little
0: effect yeah so i mean it seems like like you were doing exciting work here on the academia side and, and the research so why did you decide to you know put it on hold and shift gears towards you know starting a new business with dapper um the main reason is uh is
1: again uh, pursuing ideas like i'm you know i i don't really have a career in the in the regular notion of uh, of planning what I'm gonna do five or ten years from now. I'm really pursuing um, um, exciting ideas or ideas that excite me, and in particular moonshots. I I'd like ideas that that look kind of important or, or ideas that uh, um, I think that if I want to do them. No one, no one else will. And uh, and with Dapper, my idea was: what will happen if we'll turn the web into a set of building blocks, Lego blocks? Right. So at the time, uh, you know, you could consume the web mainly by going to a browser uh, and uh, typing some URL or finding it on a search engine and reading and uh, experiencing it. Through your eyes as a human, and uh, and my question was, well, what if we turn every website on the web into an API, basically into a building block, and we let people uh, uh, take all of those building blocks and create new things with them? And basically, that's what we did with that with uh, in Dapper. We uh, created this machine learning technology that could take any website understand its structure and then turn it into an api and uh, and uh, people got really excited about it. It, it that process took about three to five minutes uh so um people would, would just come uh, and turn their favorite websites into these apis and create mashups and create a uh, applications and uh, Google gadgets and uh, and uh, Facebook apps and uh, all kinds of uh, uh, cool stuff. Um, and we we felt like it's sort of unlocking uh, the real web creativity, in a sense.
0: So then let's fast forward, because then you come to the U.S. when you were yes. supposed to do your Series B financing round. And then yes. all of a sudden... The market collapsed, and you find yourself reorganizing the company. Tell us, tell us what happened there.
1: Yeah, so uh, a year, a year and a half into Dapper, uh, I decided that uh, we decided that uh, I need to move uh, to the to San Francisco to develop the business. So I arrived in August two thousand and eight in the Valley. Uh, kinda in the middle of walking on my b round meeting uh, investors up and down uh sandhill road uh and um and then in things look pretty good and I was kinda um, promised a term sheet by uh, around middle of September two thousand and eight and then everything kind of collapses and instead of a term sheet, I get a phone call. Uh, saying uh, you know we close for business in in a sense, uh, so uh, we we had to kind of uh, do some uh, quick thinking on our feet. Uh, thankfully, we had uh, great investors in Excel Ventures, which are uh, uh, really an amazing uh, uh, marquee venture fund, uh, and they were... Uh, very supportive through that bridging uh, experience. I also had to uh, let go of of some twenty five percent of my workforce at the time, um, and uh, reorganize uh, the company and and really just execute and 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 walk through it. And um, uh, slowly but surely, through two thousand and nine, we we picked up more and more business and. Uh, and partners. And in 2010, beginning of t- 2010, uh, we already were kind of doing significant business uh, uh, with uh, several partners, among them uh, Yahoo. And uh, sort of by mid 2010, they were uh, uh, starting to um, uh, convince us to to join them. And um, and eventually, by the end of the year, we they they bought us
0: so obviously nice outcome over 50 million of a of a transaction but but how did this happen I mean was it uh, you were you were alluding to it that it was um, a partnership that eventually turned into an acquisition so I mean was it like all of a sudden one day they say guys we want to do an acquisition here or 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 what was that process like
1: so that was interesting it started with um what we in uh, Israel call a uh, fadicha, uh, really a uh, um, uh, big mistake on my part. So uh, we, will, we, we started a partnership, the commercial partnership with Yahoo uh, in, I, I think, somewhere like mid-2009. And the reason they wanted to partner with us is because we had some unique technology around uh, next-generation advertising, dynamic advertising. Basically, the way we made money at Dapper was turning all of this content of our advertisers in the website into dynamic ads. We were one of the uh, first few companies inventing dynamic ads and retargeting and all all this kind of stuff. And um, and so we started commercially working with them, and and apparently they they, they were excited by the results. So uh, fast forward, kind of in beginning of two thousand and ten. Some of the uh, the VPs there invited me for for a meeting, and I thought it's just a commercial meeting, but they were actually uh, trying to present us to uh, some of the top brass at uh, at uh, Yahoo, some uh, C level execs, and uh, there was a mix in the times, and I arrived there an hour late and uh and they were like super pissed that uh you know that guy is not is not accustomed to waiting to anyone <laughs> and they were kind of su- super pissed uh explained that the, you know uh, the the issue uh but it couldn't been a kind of a worse kind of first date i guess mm-hmm. but uh, we we kind of uh um uh, uh passed beyond that and and kind of build a uh, uh, relationships, deeper and deeper relationships, um, and uh, and they they came to a conclusion that, uh, that we we're just like uh, kind of best of um, best of breeding in that field, and it will make sense for them to acquire us. Um, we were kind of. It took us a while to to wrap our head around the. Uh, the notion of acquisition, uh, because uh, we were kind of enjoying uh, life as an independent company. Uh, but uh, um, towards the you know end of 2010, I think uh, we came to an agreement, uh, and uh, uh, we saw an opportunity to really scale the business together with Yao and uh, and joint forces.
0: And then in Yahoo, there you spent a couple of years, uh, and during that time, you did develop their native advertising platform, which is ended up being a billion-dollar business. But here, you were really exposed to the politics and the dynamics, and I'm sure that perhaps for you, that was not as exciting as building your own startup. So, so what were those politics like, and and how did you navigate through that
1: Well. Um... I tried I tried to stay, steer away from it to the extent that I could. And uh, for a long time in the beginning, in, in the first kind of couple of years at Yahoo, um, I managed to do it because, you know, I was kind of head of an innovation unit, about 100 people minding my own business, uh, etc. And uh, thankfully also, I... Um, I uh, reported to this amazing person uh, called Bruno Fernandez riz that uh, uh, was my boss and ended up being sort of my partner uh, uh, also at Nexar. And we kind of, uh, I think uh, at this point, we're partners for life. Um, so I was actually having a lot of fun. And because I'm also, you know, entrepreneur, um, you can do... You know, when you come as an entrepreneur into a large corporate, you can do pretty much uh, what you want and and be forgiven, in a sense. Uh, Where it started to really, uh, uh, when politics started to really be uh, problematic was when we started to succeed at scale. Right. So Bruno and I uh, started this project around native advertising and native content. Back in 2012, and uh, Marisa Meyer, which uh, who was the, the CEO, kind of approved the project for us and let us run with it. But then, in I think in the beginning of 2013, she realized that it's actually going to be a big deal. Right? Like uh, initially, it was like okay, you know, there's a big company, lots of projects. You do another one, no problem. But at some point, it started growing really quickly. And then the mistake that she did was she actually announced to the wall that it's a, to in, inside Yahoo that it's going to be one of her major initiatives for 2013. Now, what happens in in a in a company like Yahoo uh, when you when the CEO announces that this is going to be a major project? What Immediately happened is that every SVP uh, that uh, is somehow related wants a piece of the action, right? You you want to be relevant. You want to walk on the things that matter. So all of a sudden, you you get this kind of whole turf war and dynamics, uh, and it was kind of quite uh, quite funny and uh, and amusing in retrospect to 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 see that that uh, that human dynamics kind of play, but. At the, at the at that time it was quite annoying um so um uh we we did uh, we kinda kept going uh, built uh, built that business uh, but uh, by the end of two thousand and thirteen i i kinda uh, uh, said my goodbyes from yahoo
0: and left so then let's talk about this uh, this phase because obviously now you know, Bruno. Now you are ready for another moonshot, and now Nexar comes knocking. So, what happened with Nexar, and how you know did you come across the idea, and how did you came about you know bringing it to life?
1: Yeah. So, so I had a, so I took a a year of sort of sabbatical uh, um, uh, as entrepreneur in residence in a VC uh, called Aleph, a great VC in Israel, and and that gave. And me and also Bruno time to really research. and we had we, we came to that research with um, uh, one important insight that we thought is important or interested in in, in kind of exploring. and that was that uh, deep learning and machine learning that we kind of knew from our data center and and cloud experience at Yahoo we we saw deep learning moving to the edge edge devices to uh, smartphones and uh, and iot devices and that was fundamental for us it, it felt like a a, a tectonic shift that will have lots of implications because the minute you can do that you can do intelligence in real time you don't have to to do everything in in the data center and in the cloud and if you can do things in the in the edge you can um Provide intelligence to real-world, real-time use cases, and for us, as we kind of looked at the at the world and asked ourselves, okay, what is really a a problem worth uh, dealing with um, that we can kind of help help the world in a in a meaningful way? We kept going back to mobility and to driving because you know other than missiles uh driving is the most real time experience that most of us will will experience um and uh, and and that was kind of one important uh, aspect of it but the other one was that there was this disconnect between what the industry is kind of promising us and what reality shows right like if you look at the number of collisions and the number of fatalities Uh, uh, on the road, you see a consistent growth from uh, 2010 uh, to this day. Every year, more fatalities, more uh, collisions. And at the same time, people are talking about autonomous vehicles and ADAS and safety and all of this kind of sophisticated technology coming into the vehicle. And we looked at it and said, what gives? What's going on here? Why is it that on the one hand uh, you have multi-billion-dollar companies and and tens of billion-dollar companies talking about how um, collisions are are going to go away soon, and at the same time we see the number of collisions and fatalities uh, going up, the number of congestion events and the amount of congestion going up. There's some uh, fundamental disconnect, and we thought that we understood that disconnect, and we kind of decided we're going to try and, and and deal
0: with it. So then, what were the next steps? So the next steps were, were to um, uh,
1: try to come up with a framework that will uh, try to solve the problem. The problem was uh, time. You, when you are getting into a stressful situation in, in on the road, you have very uh, limited amount of time to react. Both you as well as the car, because you're only reliant on sensors that are in the vehicle, whether it's your eyes, whether it's uh, cameras on the vehicle, lighter, it doesn't matter what, you are confined to what's in the vehicle. So our idea was if we build a network of vehicles that com- communicate all the time, share information in real time, uh, that will allow us to uh, uh, vastly improve um, the, the situation so we we raised some money in the beginning of 2015 and we started working on exactly that building a network and initially we were kind of building it in single city just in new york city and just in tel aviv uh, and starting to build a technology and ai and deploying ai uh, uh, at the edge on a smartphone uh, and in a camera, all of this kind of stuff, a lot of technology that you, you need to build, uh, and, uh, and start uh, hustling, start distributing these you nodes, know, going up um, aftermarket. Our, our main uh, go-to-market um, strategy uh, was not going through the car OEMs. We were like, there's no way to build a network. Through uh, car manufacturers, because none of them have enough critical mass to create a network to begin with in any area. You have to go over the top. You have to go aftermarket, right? So we we latched on to this concept of dash cams and and uh, sm- and cameras in vehicles uh, and started deploying um, our own cameras. Starting working with a whole set of camera manufacturers and and partners. Uh, start building the AI technology, the sensor fusion technology, all of it um, uh, coming together. Uh, and uh, like I said, we we started lighting up cities one by one. Okay, so initially we were kind of focusing on Uber drivers in New York, only them, and and start building critical mass there. And then we moved to San Francisco and to Chicago and Las Vegas. And uh, and then we started really going uh, big across the U.S. Um, and now we we have users in over a thousand cities, and we see uh, over half of all uh,
0: roads in the U.S. every week. So, in terms of the business model, how do you guys make money with Nexar? So, what what we do
1: is uh, all of these cameras that are on the road and vehicles that are on the road. Are uh, capturing a lot of data, right? Uh, we we basically are crawling the public space like Google crawls the web, right? So we we have, I think, other than Tesla, we ha- we have the the most amount of uh, video and and sensor data from the from the road, um, and we turn all of this data into. Uh, maps and insights and uh, and data services that are quite useful for people. They're useful for cities to better manage themselves. They're useful for mapping services companies, for ride sharing companies, and mobility companies. Um, so, you know, if you can detect uh, every street sign and street light, and you can detect uh, road constructions, and you can detect parking spots, and all this kind of stuff, and turn that um, in real time into uh, actionable data, uh, then there are there are quite a few um, uh, partners, potential partners, and and customers that will be interested in that, and and that's the bulk of what we do. We work with uh, municipalities, with states. Okay, so some of our customers are um, uh, organizations like the City of LA. Las Vegas, Ohio, um, different states and and cities in in the U.S., but also private companies that uh, have to map continuously, have to route the vehicles continuously, um, uh, companies that uh, deal with uh, mobility and uh, and are interested in what's going on, and insurance companies. Uh, Insurance companies are a major set of partners and customers because uh, we can uh, turn a collision from a he said, she said situation into a total recall kind of experience, right? Like uh, we have this kind of tools to really um, turn that into a a two-minute situation.
0: So then how much have you raised for the business? Because it sounds capital intensive.
1: It is quite capital intensive. That's true. We raised about just about $100 million to date over this past uh, five years. Um, We try to be frugal, try to um, be as frugal as we can. Um, But... but, there is a lot of work if you, if you are, um, you know, if you're trying to do things at this scale, it does require some significant investment, both in technology and IP, and in operation.
0: And, and in terms of the, the employees, how, how, how many employees do you guys have today? We have about 100 employees. And do you, are they distributed amongst the different uh, regions or all there in Israel? Most of them are in Israel. Still, most of our
1: employees are R&D, both research and development. Um, but we also have uh, uh, about, I think, something like 15 uh, in the U.S., uh, mainly in New York and a few other markets.
0: And anything else that uh, perhaps you can provide to give the folks that are listening an idea on how big Nexar is today?
1: Um Sure, um, I can get, I can provide some some uh, cool stats. Um, we have driven. We we collected video from over a billion miles of road, over wow. twenty million uh, harsh events, uh, collisions, near collisions. Uh, you know, pretty much any any kind of thing you Im- can imagine. We've seen um we collect uh, uh, close to 100 million miles a month of uh, road um uh, and so we we see over half of the whole US every week and uh, 95 to 99% of the, all the highways and the major cities in the US uh, uh, every week so so we see we see the world uh, at least in the in the countries where we operate uh we see it um pretty frequently All right like next time you uh use Google street view go and check from when those images are you'll probably see that it's between six months and five years uh and then go to nexo's live map and see data from you know anywhere between a few seconds ago to an hour or a few hours ago.
0: And it seems that now there's a lot of um, you know, consciousness around driving, around safety. Now there's also a lot of uh, self-driving cars that are you know, starting to really be seen out there on the road. So where do you think that this space, and in this case your space, is really heading as a whole? Well,
1: I think it's going to take a while until uh, any of us we're going to use a uh, self-driving cars um, in a meaningful way. Uh, they're going to be a, a focused on specific geographic areas, uh, geofence in a sense, for, for quite, a, quite a while um, still. And uh, the main reason for that is those 20 million events that I mentioned before, if you look at them, you'll see that um, they are so varied. There's such a long tail of problems that you need to solve on the road. Um, it's really non-trivial. Okay, so that will take us time, but um, but what we can already do, and what you know we're trying to play a role is how can we move the needle on safety and on coordination today? Not wait for for autonomous vehicles. Um, really make an impact today. And uh, and the way we're, we're doing that is um, is through networking. Basically, uh, what we've done at Nexar is we uh, created a, a mapping of every little uh, piece of road, uh, every one square meter of road, uh, we gave it an address. Think of it like an IP address. And so when a vehicle kind of comes into a neighborhood, it can subscribe to all of those uh, little pieces of road and see what's new and what's go- going on. And all of a sudden, you can see beyond uh, your line of sight. You can see what's going on five cars ahead or around the corner or things like that. And um, and I think that the, the world is, is going more and more into that uh, realm of collecting data and disseminating it uh, in real time. Um, the other thing that I'm quite excited about is um, really uh, this notion of data as the new oil, uh, uh, which became sort of uh, you know a bit of a, a of a recurring theme in the last few years. Uh, but um, it's actually it has a lot of merit right, so what's what's going on with the vehicles is that they are quickly turning from a a a car with all kinds of chips embedded into a computer with wheels right uh, the The ones that pioneered it are Tesla. from an architecture perspective. they were kind of years ahead of the competition, but all the OEMs are going in that direction and the and the biggest question for them is well how do i actually monetize all of this data how how do i turn it into a business uh, and how do i do that at scale um because they are only working at scale and that's that's where i'm very excited about right because if you take a a, a car oem a fleet right like thousands and millions of vehicles deployed, uh, they are accustomed to thinking about the compute and the connectivity and all of these things as a cost center, as something that costs them money and that they have to do in order to get telemetry data, in order to uh, manage it, etc etc. And all of a sudden, now we can turn it into a revenue center, into something that actually makes money. Right? Like think for example on the problem of parking. Right? Wouldn't it be lovely to know about every available uh, uh, open uh, parking spot on the streets of, uh, you know, par- Paris or, or Milan or New York? Uh, well, every vehicle sees, you know, uh, sees those parking spots. There's just not an orchestrated way of coordinating and collecting all this data and then sending it back to the drivers. And these things are now popping up. And, and I think there's a lot of excitement around it.
0: Very cool. Very cool. And for the folks that are listening, this is um, a question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show. And that is knowing what you know now, Iran, I mean, it's, it's amazing that you're now on your third company. Obviously this one is, the most meaningful one to date. uh, And it's incredible what you guys are up to. So I'm I'm wondering here, like if you had that opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Aaron that is about to launch a business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself, given what you know now and uh, what would that be? Well, I, I think for,
1: for me, it's, Go and study as much as you can. Mental models. I think that that the the most important superpower that you can uh, build as a, a young entrepreneur is really uh, learn your mental models well, uh, because they are, for me at least, the most important tool in my my tool chest uh, to understanding um new situations and by definition uh you know startups are all about new situations they are all about exploring the unexplored and when you do that you need uh, some some tools that allow you to find patterns that find to to set things set new situations in old uh, frameworks and and um, i think that this is uh, this is one of the things that people don't study enough in their early days, there isn't like a mental models course in, uh, in high school. Uh, and, and that's sad uh, in my view. Uh, so I would go and invest the time, uh, go read your Charlie Munger, read, read about mental models, uh, read about biases. I think that all of these tools are, are very important and very useful.
0: Very profound, Iran. So, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Well, I'm quite accessible on uh, Twitter, Iran Sheer. Uh, I'm also uh, available uh, on uh, on my email, Iran uh, at dot com is a good place to to go. Um, I do have a TikTok account, but I never publish anything. Unfortunately, I'm just lurking there. So. <laughs> uh, I, I would go got with it. Twitter
0: and email. You got me all excited, Aaron, with those videos of you dancing at first. So I'm, I'm guessing we'll have to wait <laughs> for those. But, yes. but anyhow, Aaron, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Oh, thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember,